welcome to Word Online. Hello and welcome to series 11 and episode 3 in which we study Jesus cursing the fig tree. And if you were with us in the last episode, you'll know that the first part of this story took place then. And then the second part of the story completes it and is the one we're going to study. This time we're going to put those two together. So it's an advantage to have listened to the last episode. But for those who haven't, I will summarise the situation for you anyway. Now, in the life of Jesus, this is the time when he's in the city of Jerusalem for what we call Passion Week, the last week of his life, which starts with Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, which we looked at uh, two episodes ago. And before then, of course, we had the long journey to Jerusalem, which we described in great detail and took several series to discuss because there's a huge amount of material during that time. But we're now reaching a climax in the conflict between Jesus and the religious authorities of Israel. And that conflict comes about because they rejected his claim to be the Jewish Messiah, coming to bring a new covenant, to bring deliverance, to bring salvation to their people. And Jesus, quite deliberately, is using this final visit to Jerusalem to create a conflict, a challenge to them, which will provoke them to take action against him. This is all under the sovereignty of God. Jesus already knows that it's necessary for him to suffer, to be tried in their court, to be handed over to the Romans, to die as a substitutionary sacrificial atonement for people, and then to rise again from the dead. We'll look at the details of all that in forthcoming episodes. But we're now in the early part of this week We've seen the triumphal entry into Jerusalem two episodes ago on Palm Sunday, the Sunday at the beginning of the week. And we've seen the incredible way that the crowds were so excited about Jesus coming into the city. They've been waiting in anticipation. His reputation in the country has been growing all the time. And he didn't come to Jerusalem very often. And he's certainly not been to Jerusalem in this kind of context before. He normally comes rather discreetly and quietly to one of the religious festivals. And that's recorded on several occasions in John's Gospel. But this time it's very public and very powerful. He's just raised Lazarus from the dead in the nearby village of Bethany, which is the village that Jesus is staying in during the course of the first half of this week, going in and out of the city every day. That created a sensation and large crowds have been traveling in because it's the Jewish Passover feast. These are things that we discussed in the last couple of episodes just to set the context for what is going on. Now, in the last episode, we looked at the events of Monday, the following day. Jesus had come into the city in triumph. Crowds gathered around him. Then he left the city and went back to Bethany on Sunday evening. On Monday, he came in to the city again, and we looked at that in the the last episode. And the main event of the last episode was Jesus' visit to the temple courts, the big social area where people gathered outside the central courts of the temple, where the sacrificial system and the religious observances were taking place. But there was a large area for socializing and gathering 
which people are allowed to go to called the temple courts. And in the last episode, we saw Jesus going there and going into the trading market that the priests had set up there. And this was for the purpose of money changing between the temple currency and the Roman currency, and also for selling pilgrims and worshippers animals suitable for sacrificing. And in the last episode, Jesus comes in and he very decisively turns over the tables, disrupts the market, stops people moving around with their merchandise, and basically brings the whole trading to a halt for a period of time, which could have gone on several hours. The implication of the text in Mark's gospel is that it took some time. And because of the amazement of the crowds and the huge numbers of people supporting him, the authorities were not able to take any action against him at that time. So that was the main event of our last episode. However, something happened on the way in from Bethany to Jerusalem, which forms the basis for some remarkable teaching, which we're going to look at in this episode. And if you were with us in the last episode, you'll remember what happened. Let me just recount it to you briefly. Now, bear in mind that Bethany, where Jesus was staying with his disciples, was just a few kilometers outside the city and within walking distance, maybe three kilometers or something like that. And Jesus was walking in and out every day. As he walked in, to the city of Jerusalem on the Monday for the second time, the day after the triumphal entry. We read in the accounts, particularly in Mark, because Mark's account is the fullest account. Matthew has the same story, but he compresses it, the narrative somewhat. So we're going to follow Mark's account. We're going to continue to do that in this episode. Mark tells us that Jesus, when he left Bethany, was hungry and he wanted something extra to eat. So as he was thinking about that, he saw a fig tree on the side of the road, on the road between Bethany and Jerusalem. He approached the tree because he saw it had leaves on the tree. And we discussed last time the fact that this particular time of year, March and April, the leaves on the fig trees would be beginning to show. Presumably this one was showing early and was an advanced in the production of leaves. And the figs would follow, usually around June. But you'd often get little miniature figs, early figs, in the earlier period if the tree demonstrated an early showing of leaves. That's the implication. That's what most commentators think lies behind what happened next because Jesus looked for figs even though it wasn't the season for mature figs in June. He wanted the early ones but there weren't any on the tree and so he said to the tree a form of curse by saying may no one ever eat fruit from you again to quote the words from Mark eleven fourteen. Matthew then comments that the tree began to wither immediately from that moment. Now, that happened as they were traveling on the Monday. This is the event 
of the previous episode. They went into the city of Jerusalem and other things happened in the temple. So let me just read that section first for you because that's the event which forms the basis for an extended commentary and teaching which focuses on the themes of prayer and faith. And that's really what we want to talk about in this episode because some very remarkable things are said by Jesus concerning prayer and faith and God's miraculous power that follows that faith. Let's just first of all reread the actual moments when Jesus encountered the fig tree and cursed it. This is from Mark 11 verses 12 to 14. The next day as they were leaving Bethany Jesus was hungry Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Now we need to move on to the second part of this story, which happens a little bit later. So we move forward in Mark 11 to verses 20 to 25, which shows us what happens the following day. In the morning, that's the Tuesday morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from its roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, Believe that you have received it and it'll be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. So the fig tree becomes the symbol of some important teaching. We discussed last time in the last episode that in one sense the fig tree could be seen as a symbol of the nation of Israel. And I gave some biblical reasons why we can say that and that the, the nation of Israel was going to wither away under God's judgment. That's one line of thought that's probably relevant to the context. But here Jesus moves in a completely different direction. And he uses the event that happened to teach about prayer. This is not the first time that he's used an event to teach people about prayer. You see, in the morning, when they passed the tree, Peter clearly remembered what had happened the previous day and drew Jesus' attention to this tree. He said, look, you cursed it, it's with it, it's just sort of flopped to the ground it's just faded away it's just died 
overnight, literally. Peter was surprised. Peter was intrigued. Peter was often on the front foot and said things quickly that he noticed and felt. Here's another example of Peter's temperament. He draws Jesus' attention to the fig tree, withered, fruitless, died. And Jesus turns this situation into an opportunity to teach on faith. You see, what Peter had noticed is that Jesus's command to the tree had led to an instant result. Verse 14, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. A command. And it withered straight away. And by the next day, it was dead. So let's have a think about what Jesus teaches. This is very challenging teaching. This provokes us. This draws us to really think about our relationship with God and our understanding of prayer and how God moves in prayer. This is a very stimulating passage for us. Have faith in God. And when Jesus says have faith in God, he's not just talking about mental assent, believing certain doctrines, nodding when someone is preaching in a church. He's talking about something that comes right from the heart, having a living trust in God in everyday life for everything that happens, his sovereignty and his control over our lives and his desire to intervene in our lives, his love for us, the fact that we're in a covenant relationship with him, the fact that we are forgiven by him, the fact that we live with the power of the Holy Spirit within us and he wants to do things in our lives on a daily basis. These are the vivid realities that Jesus had in mind when he says, have faith in God. And then he goes on and he makes a very important statement here. Anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it'll be done for them. He's basically saying the authority he has, then believers will also inherit that authority as they follow in his footsteps. But what are the mountains? That's a very important question for interpretation. A mountain, in general terms, is an opposition, something that stands in your way. You're walking along a road and you come to a mountain. It's an obstacle. It's a problem. It's a challenge. Getting over that mountain is particularly difficult. So I would describe the mountains here probably as obstacles and specifically Obstacles to the advance of the kingdom of God. Now, when many people teach on this passage, and if they're influenced by faith teaching and prosperity teaching, they will describe the mountains in their interpretation as obstacles to your personal happiness or fulfillment. With the 
focus being on the individual person and the teaching being that God wants Christian believers to be fulfilled, happy, healthy, wealthy, secure in their lives. I don't believe that's what Jesus had in mind at all in this context. The obstacles here are to the advance of the kingdom of God. The whole of Jesus' teaching up until this point about discipleship is not about individual personal fulfillment and satisfaction and happiness. It's about us giving our lives for a greater cause, giving our lives for the kingdom of God, orientating our lives to being servants of Christ, willing to suffer, willing to serve, willing to pay a cost to serve him because we're absolutely sure it's the right thing to do and we're absolutely confident of our eternal destiny and we're absolutely sure of eternal rewards in heaven, treasures in heaven, as Jesus often says. That's the perspective. So the cultural perspective with which you come to this text will affect your interpretation of it. So I'm suggesting to us that these mountains are related to the advance of the kingdom of God, the things that God wants to do. And we are being given authority in prayer to overcome some of these obstacles. There's similar teaching in Matthew 17, verse 20, when an obstacle was being overcome. There was a boy who had seizures and the disciples were unable to heal him. Jesus came to help them and healed the boy. And then he concludes with the following statement in Matthew's version, Matthew 17, verse 20. Uh, they say, why couldn't we drive out the evil spirits in this case? And he said, because you have so little faith. I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible to you. Notice again the expression, this mountain, a metaphorical description of, of what? Something, an obstacle to personal fulfillment and happiness? No, an obstacle to the advance of the kingdom, a demonic force that is resisting the power of Christ. So that's what a mountain is in that context. And therefore, it makes sense here to think of the mountain, the metaphor of the mountain, as an obstacle to the advance of the kingdom of God. So he's basically saying, trust God, have a deep faith. He's also saying, get your relationships right, particularly avoiding falling into the trap and the sin of unforgiveness. He's unambiguous about that. Whenever you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. It's interesting that several times Jesus directly connects unforgiveness as a problem with difficulty in prayer. So he's challenging us to a life of prayer where we identify the obstacles to the kingdom of God in our situation and where we respond with profound faith and prayers of certainty. 
based on the faith and declaration of what we believe God is going to do in a particular situation. Now, we're going to have to look at the details of how this works out and get a little bit behind the text to understand it. Interestingly, though, the timing of the moving of the mountain is not stated here. Is it going to happen instantaneously? Is it going to happen gradually? Is it going to happen in the long term? Could be any of those. It requires faith. Mountains may not move immediately. Now, I want to contextualize this very challenging teaching with some wider observations about Jesus' teaching on prayer in other places, just to give a little bit more background and make more sense of the passage. It's interesting that in the Lord's Prayer, first of all, the focus is on this prayer, Matthew 6, verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Again, do you notice that the focus of prayer is on God's kingdom. It's true that later on in the Lord's Prayer, we can ask him for our daily bread, our actual needs we can bring before him rightly and legitimately, and he will respond to our prayers for our needs for certain. But our greater priority is your kingdom come. Also elsewhere, the issue of forgiveness is prioritised. Matthew 6 verses 12 to 15 is interesting, still in the Lord's Prayer, where it says in verse 12, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And then in verse 14, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. So we see again the connection between forgiveness and powerful praying and this is one reason why some Christians uh, don't experience powerful praying because they're areas of unforgiveness in their lives and if that's you can I suggest to you this is a great opportunity as you're listening to this episode and responding to it to bring to God those things that still need you to forgive others this is a hard thing to do it's sometimes extremely hard and painful but it is the will of God for your blessing, for you to release other people from your judgment. Hand that judgment over to him and then you'll experience a greater sense of closeness to the living God and a greater sense of being able to pray with authority. Another thing that we need to add in to this particular passage is the theme of persistence. We've come across this time and again. For example, Matthew 7, verses 7 to 11. Ask and it be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. And then it goes on with examples of how that works out. And the asking, the seeking and the knocking are continuous activities. Keep on asking, keep on seeking. Keep on knocking on the door of heaven. And then I want to add in one other perspective before we try and bring this to a conclusion and try and make it as practical as we can. In Romans 8, verse 26 onwards, Paul describes the process of prayer 
as he understood it, based on a clear perspective on the work of the Holy Spirit. What Jesus doesn't say in Mark 11, but does say elsewhere, for example, in John chapters 14, 15 and 16, is that the Holy Spirit is going to be the dynamic power that helps us to pray and to serve God and to move authoritatively. And Paul has the same perspective in these verses here, where he says in Romans 8, 26, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes with us through wordless groans, and he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. So Paul introduces the idea here that we don't always know how to pray effectively, but the Spirit helps us. The Spirit interprets for us the will of God and works deep within us because he's living within each believer and he will orientate you towards the priority of God's kingdom in your life and in your situation and give you confidence to pray for the fulfillment of those things and the overcoming of obstacles that relate to your life, your situation and the things that God has called you to do. This is very helpful for us because it makes more sense of understanding what on earth could these mountains be. I've described them as obstacles to the advance of the kingdom of God. But what are those obstacles? Well, they're different in every person's situation. They're different in every culture. They're different in every family situation. They're different in every church situation. But the Holy Spirit will help us to understand are there demonic forces putting obstacles in our way? Are there human situations that are impossible to resolve and extremely difficult? Are there sicknesses that are standing in the way of God's purposes? Is there lack of financial provision that just means it's impossible to function effectively as a Christian? There are all sorts of possibilities of what these obstacles might be. Is there persecution that threatens to close down the witness of the church? Whatever those obstacles are, Jesus says, by having faith in God, and Paul says, with the Holy Spirit helping you to understand, we can identify those obstacles and we can start praying for God to deal with them in his own way and to remove them so that the kingdom of God can keep advancing. Now, how is he going to do that? Well, we don't always know. Sometimes his answers to our prayers are a little bit different from what we expect. When is he going to do it? We don't know. I've already mentioned that the issue of timing is not clear from this particular teaching. Now, in the case of the fig tree, the timing was immediate. The case of the authority and the power of Jesus, things happened, generally speaking, immediately. We're learning about exercising that authority and God operates in a large time span and so sometimes we pray for things that we know God wants to happen in and through us and we'll do it for many years for 5 to 10 15 or 20 years before we see the breakthrough but Jesus is encouraging us in my final reflections here to take a very active view of 
prayer, to be very alive in our faith. And Paul encourages us in Romans 8 and elsewhere to be very aware of the presence of the Holy Spirit and the leading of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's direction concerning the things that God wants to do in our lives and in our situations, which may be different from what we first thought. So, let's take encouragement from this passage, remembering not to interpret it as a basis for some personal fulfillment and comfort, but let's remember to interpret it as a guide towards dealing with the obstacles to the advance of the kingdom of God in our lives and in our situations. So after we finish this episode, read it again. Go back to the cursing of the fig tree and see how amazingly Jesus turns this little incident into a story that teaches us many things. So we're given power in prayer. And my own testimony is that I've focused on a life of regular and faithful prayer on the basis of believing that these scriptures like this and, and a number of others are absolutely key to me functioning effectively as a Christian believer. These scriptures are key for you too, and I'm encouraging you to take hold of this text in a fresh and a new way. Read it again and ask the Lord what the application is in your life. What are the obstacles? What are the mountains that you should be asking God to deal with? And he'll give you guidance and he'll give you faith and you'll see some great breakthroughs. You have been listening to Martin Charlesworth for Word Online. To find out more, visit wordonline.org.